This podcast is presented by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. Perhaps because we were an English colony, we Americans are ever fascinated by things British. British culture, British history, British royalty, it's all around us in the media. Now, it may seem like a little bit of a stretch, but in the 19th century, Italian opera composers were just as fascinated by stories set in the British Isles. They had an image of Scotland and England as places with moors covered by a foggy mist, craggy cliffs and abutments dotted with ruined castles that are the perfect atmosphere for the bloody stories that came from the pens of those early 19th century English writers. British history was also a source of stories for Italian opera, and Gaetano Donizetti did more than most to mine that history for inspiration. Roberto Devereux and Anna Bolena are examples of operas that he wrote based on the history of England's royal family. And both of those operas deal with a powerful queen and her political struggle to remain on the throne. Donizetti's third queen opera is the work at hand today, an opera that actually has two powerful female rulers at its core, one being Elizabeth I and the other being her cousin Mary Stuart, Queen of Scotland. They may never have met in real life, but Donizetti and his librettist take advantage of the dramatic potential that exists if we accept that perhaps, maybe, Mary and Elizabeth actually did meet. What is the opera? Maria Stuarda, Mary, Queen of Scots. I'm Nick Ravellis, and this is Opera Talk. The source of Donizetti's Maria Stuarda is the life of Mary, Queen of Scots. She was born of James V of Scotland and the French royal Marie de Guise in 1542. Her father, the king, died seven days after her birth, and she was crowned queen the following year, while her mother ruled as regent. Now, the Scottish Stuarts were a Catholic regency and received a considerable amount of political support from France. It was Scotland's wish to be aligned with France against England, which they saw as a constant threat. Francis I was the reigning king of France at this time, and the very young Mary was sent to France in 1548 in order to keep her close to her French Catholic cousins. But upon the death of King Francis, his son, Henry II, became king, and the young Mary was betrothed to his son, the Dauphin, another Francis. Mary and Francis were crowned king and queen of France immediately upon the death of Henry in 1559. It was a glorious affair, played out at the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris. But her happiness was not to last. She got word of her mother's death in Scotland early in 1560, and six months later her husband, the king, died from an ear infection. She was thus a widow at 19 years of age. Her destiny had already been established, however, by virtue of her royal birth she returned to Scotland as queen. In the meantime, Henry VIII's daughter by Anne Boleyn, Elizabeth, had taken the throne of England. 
Her claim to the English throne was precarious at first, and Elizabeth had to fend off numerous conspiracies both at home and abroad. Amongst her problems, as always, was England's precipitous relationship with France. And as she had established herself as a Protestant ruler, Catholic France and the Scotland of the very Catholic Mary, Queen of Scots, looked like threats that she would one day need to deal with. It became clear to Mary that she would soon have to marry in order to provide heirs for the Scottish throne. Her choice was quite unwise. Her own cousin, Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley, a vain young man who wanted more power for himself than Mary was willing to give him. After much drama, however, her child, James VI of Scotland, was born, and she enjoyed a few happy days. The following year, her very unpopular husband was murdered by the nobles, and under duress, she married James Hepburn, the Earl of Bothwell. Suspicion arose of her having been involved in Lord Darnley's murder, and she was arrested and placed under guard at Lochleven Castle. At that point, her one-year-old son was named James VI of Scotland. Mary eventually escaped from Lochleven and fled to England, hoping for protection from her cousin Elizabeth. But from 1568 to 1587, she was held in various English prisons, always dependent upon Elizabeth's political or religious temperature at any given time. For the Protestant Elizabeth to seem to be gracious to her Catholic cousin was a dangerous move, and the English queen kept a decision at bay as long as she could. Eventually, however, Mary was accused of plotting against the life of Elizabeth. She was tried and then finally executed at Fotheringay Castle in 1587, without ever having even met her royal cousin and accuser. On Queen Elizabeth's death in 1603, Mary's son James became James I of Scotland and England, and he moved his mother's remains to Westminster Abbey, where they remain to this day. Let's fast forward about 250 years and skip across the continent to sunny southern Italy, Naples to be exact. In the spring of 1834, the composer of Lucia di Lammermoor, Gaetano Donizetti, was approached by the Teatro San Carlo to produce a brand new opera. He had seen Friedrich Schiller's play about Mary, Queen of Scots, in Milan, and so he was fascinated by the prospect of tackling the subject. The composer turned to a young 17-year-old untried poet named Giuseppe Bardari, who is one of the few librettists to be credited with absolutely nothing further in the history of Italian opera. In fact, so undistinguished was his opera career that he later became a judge and finally the prefect of police in Naples. Rehearsals for the opera began during the month of September, Donizetti having spent the summer composing and orchestrating the score, but as often happened in these times, the royal censors of the King of Naples took umbrage with the central confrontation in which Mary spits out at Elizabeth, Vil Bastarda. It certainly didn't help that the Queen of Naples, Maria Christina, was an actual descendant of Mary, Queen of Scots. Beyond that, an interesting confrontation took place between the two leading ladies during one of the rehearsals. Soprano Giuseppina Ronzi di Benis was singing the role of Mary, and soprano Anna del Sere was singing the role of Elizabeth. 
Dibenius uttered such a committed vil bastarda that Del Sere took it as a personal insult, and the two divas had a catfight, right there in front of the cast, conductor, and poor Donizetti himself. Del Sere was carried off in a faint. So that first performance of Maria Stuarda was aborted. The opera was banned from Naples after the first dress rehearsal. In order to salvage the rehearsal time as well as the work itself, Maria Stuarda quickly became Buon del Monte, a tale of 15th century Florence, and the revived piece opened on October 18, 1834. Donizetti was quite unhappy with the forced revisions, but he was determined to bring Maria Stuarda to permanent life. He remounted it for the Teatro alla Scala in Milan in December 1835. The superstar Maria Malibran took the title role. Maria Stuarda virtually disappeared from the repertoire until 1958, when it was revived at the Teatro Donizetti in Bergamo, Italy. The career of American soprano Beverly Sills went a long way in establishing the opera as one of Donizetti's true gems, invigorating New York opera fans to wait with great anticipation of her singing any of the composer's three queen operas, Maria Stuarda, Roberto Devereux, and Anna Bolena. The fact that there were three different versions of Donizetti's opera during his own lifetime and that there has not been a definitive version of the opera until recently makes it a problematic piece to perform. One must make decisions about what to include, what not to include, which overture to use, which version to purchase for the company. But in the generally accepted version used today, Maria Stuarda, or Mary Queen of Scots, is a great example of mid-19th century bel canto opera and a gripping drama for the stage. At Whitehall Palace in London, Queen Elizabeth considers a proposal of marriage from the King of France, but she can't quite shake her love for her favorite, Robert, the Earl of Leicester. Her advisers, Talbot and Cecil, disagree over the fate of Mary, the Queen of Scots, who's been exiled from her homeland and is now imprisoned at Fotheringay Castle, seeking Elizabeth's protection. Talbot wants her to receive that protection, but Cecil wants her executed. The thing that complicates all of this is that Elizabeth suspects that Robert, the Earl of Leicester, secretly loves the Scottish Queen. When Robert arrives, Elizabeth makes a public show that she will accept the French King's proposal of marriage, noting that Robert makes no protest, fueling her suspicion. When the Queen withdraws, Talbot delivers a letter from Mary to Robert. He does indeed love her, and he decides then and there to free her from imprisonment or die trying. After Talbot leaves, Elizabeth returns and confronts Robert. Did he receive a letter from Mary? He risks her wrath by giving her the letter, a profound plea from Mary that Elizabeth come to meet her. Elizabeth distrusts the Scottish monarch now more than ever because of the love she suspects that exists between her and Robert. But Robert succeeds in getting her to agree to a meeting at Fotheringay, even though Elizabeth still has strong suspicions. 
The two queens finally meet at the great hunting park of Fotheringay. At first, Mary is humble and begs Elizabeth for help, but nothing can penetrate Elizabeth's pride, her haughtiness, and indeed her fear of losing her power. Words are exchanged and Mary insults the English queen, who then sentences Mary to imprisonment and death. Recitative, recitativo. I've used the word for eight seasons of opera talk, but I don't think I've ever stopped to define it. With Maria Stuarda, perhaps it's time we did. Over the centuries, dramatists and composers have realized that not every word in a drama carries equal weight. Not everything is designed to be carried by a standout melody. As opera has developed and become more like a sung play or a drama, those mundane bits of dialogue between characters, the conversational stuff, has had to be handled in a different way. And so a style of singing to simple chordal accompaniment developed in order to handle that kind of text. This was a kind of reciting style, a style in which the singing was meant to be as close as possible to the rhythm of speech, hence the name recitative or recitativo in Italian. In the days of Handel, Mozart, and even through Rossini, recitative was accompanied chiefly by some kind of keyboard instrument, like the harpsichord or the fortepiano, bolstered by a bass instrument like the cello and maybe an occasional doubling by a lute. By the time opera history got to Donizetti, the harpsichord and the fortepiano accompaniment of recitatives had all but disappeared, and the orchestra had taken over completely. This gave composers much more freedom, really, in using instruments to draw a picture of what was happening on stage, as well as in the hearts of the characters. Let's look at an example from Maria Stuarda, or Mary Queen of Scots. This is the beginning of the Act I finale where Elizabeth and Mary meet each other outside Fotheringay Castle. Elizabeth is feigning a hunting trip, so she's in full hunting costume, and a meeting between herself and the Queen of Scotland has been secretly arranged to happen almost by accident. The dialogue between herself and her beloved Lester couldn't be more mundane. She asks, where are we? And he answers, Fotheringay. She protests, oh, Count, where have you brought me? And he responds, have no fear, Lord Talbot will shortly appear with Mary Stuart. You see, this is just stuff that we need to get through in order to push the drama forward. It's simple conversation, but it sets up for the coming ensemble when all of the characters are finally on stage and they take a musical moment to comment on Mary's appearance in their midst and their expectation of what will happen when the two great ladies finally speak to each other. So how does Donizetti deal with this reciting material? Well, first of all, the orchestra plays a rhythmic figure that vaguely connotes a hunting motive. It's played by the strings, and then Elizabeth asks Lester where they are. His response, that they're in Fotheringay, 
is like the second half of what we've just heard, a literal and logical musical response. The rhythmic impulse continues as she speaks openly about her agitation. After all, she's nervous about meeting Queen Mary. Oh, Conte, dove mi sorgi, non dubiar. He responds, non dubiar, do not fear, non dubiar. Now things get a little more intense. The orchestra plays a simple little figure loudly. Then Lester sings without any accompaniment at all telling her that Mary Stuart will soon appear. Now, although Donizetti writes out the notation over the words, giving the singer an idea of where the important beats are and how long or how short a note should be held, it was and is expected that the singer perform a passage like this just as if he were speaking the text in a legitimate drama. Let me try to show you the difference. Here's how it's written. Maria... Sarà in breve guidata al cospetto dal saggio talbo. Kind of boring. Here's how one could approach it dramatically. Maria, sarà in breve guidata al tuo cospetto dal saggio talbo. Now, it'll be approached by different singers in different ways depending on what dramatic note the singer wants Lester to have. Perhaps he would want the Count to speak the line quickly and quietly with a hint of nervousness in his voice. Or perhaps the singer would want his Count to be more noble, royal, make it almost like an announcement to the Queen that Mary Stuart is about to be ushered into her presence. With recitative, a singer has that kind of freedom, a freedom that's not always afforded to him in an aria. Pay attention the next time you hear an Italian bel canto opera with recitative. That's where the drama happens. And without it, all of those beautiful arias would collapse under their own weight. For an opera that hasn't been produced all that often on the stage, Maria Stuarta has had a very good history on record. Let's take a look at a few examples. The great Slovakian coloratura soprano Edita Gruberova recorded this opera twice. Here's a recording conducted by Marcello Viotti with the Munich Rundfunk Orchestra, Carmen Oprisanu as Elizabeth, and Octavio Arevalo as Lester. A later recording with the same soprano, Agnes Balza as Elizabeth, and Francisco Araiza as Lester is led by Giuseppe Patane, again with the same orchestral forces. Gruberova is stunning as Maria, and both recordings are good, but I sway a little bit more towards the Patane performance. Joan Sutherland recorded the opera with husband Richard Bonning at the helm. This is a commercial recording with Huguette Turango as Elizabeth, and Luciano Pavarotti as Lester that's still available online, with both Sutherland and Pavarotti in great voice. 
But this rarer recording on Gala Records stems from a live performance with essentially the same cast, with the exception of Stuart Burroughs as Lester. This dates from 1971 and finds Dame Joan in excellent form. Finally, here is the re-release on CD of Beverly Sills as Maria and Eileen Farrell as Elizabeth, again with Stuart Burroughs in the role of Lester. The London Philharmonic Orchestra is conducted by Aldo Ciccato. Of course, Sills fans will have no other recording before them, and it is wonderful. On DVD, we have this marvelous production from the Teatro Donizetti di Bergamo with Carmela Remigio as Maria, Sonia Ganassi as Elizabeth, and Joseph Caleja as Lester, all under the direction of Fabrizio Carminati. This is a performance full of drama and passion, all of the principal artists excellent in every way. I know you'll enjoy it. Although some of these recordings may be difficult to find, give your favorite online shopping site a try. You may even find other recordings that you'll enjoy of this great Donizetti masterpiece. Plays, novels, and operas loosely based on history can't really be thought of as history, of course. It's like Shakespeare's history plays. They communicate a version of history, which is often a retelling of historical events towards a larger purpose. That larger purpose is usually related to helping the contemporary audience realize its own place in history, or to get across a lesson that might be derived from the story that will help us better understand ourselves and the society we find ourselves in. I don't think Donizetti's Maria Stuarda, Mary Queen of Scots, is any different. At a time in Italy when absolute power was being strongly questioned, this opera showed the audience what happens when two strong royal personages, each representing opposing sides in a power struggle, come together with all of their political, religious, and personal baggage. Sometimes it ain't pretty, but the music certainly is. When you see Mary Queen of Scots, You'll have some glorious music and intense drama giving you a theatrical experience you won't soon forget. I'm Nick Ravellis. I'll see you at the opera. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Thank you for listening.